Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. <clears throat> Hello, AP Macro. Welcome to the midterm review. So, a um, couple things real quick before I jump into the review. Uh, the test is all multiple choice, so um, you don't have to worry about FRQs and things like that. We practice enough of those uh, throughout the, the semester and the year. Uh, take a calculator, uh, a basic one. Uh, the instructions should say to have a calculator, so go ahead and, and plan on having one available to you. I would take a scrap piece of paper. Um, just because while you don't have to graph per se, there are graphs on the test. And I always personally found it helpful to have a piece of paper and a pencil to graph out some things. Because it's it, to me, it's easier to actually physically do it instead of having it on the the, uh, the test. Maybe you're good and golden and don't have to worry about that. <clears throat> but uh, it's whatever you like to do. But you know, those are the things you can have for the test. Um, all right. Lastly, just with almost any AP class. There's two things you got to be worried about. There are two things you got to be able to do. First off, you got to know the content. So that's kind of what this is for, is to make sure you're good to go with the content. Uh, you're then going to have to think when you get on the test, and you have to be able to apply what you know about this content to uh, the test and the test questions. Just be aware, all righty? Just be aware that it's not all about just, oh, well, if I memorize you know, scarcity. If I memorize MPC, I'll be good to go. You got to be able to use these things. So just be aware. All right. So I'm going to go out of order from your review. I'm going to start with the older stuff. I'm going to start with the stuff from last semester, unit one and unit two, and then we'll dive into unit three uh, and unit four uh, after that. So picking up uh, down the bottom, unit one, <clears throat> the first thing from 1.1 is the factors of production. And, uh, you know, uh, this is pretty simple. Uh, land, labor, capital, entrepreneurs. Land is in any kind of gift of nature. Uh, think of you know a cornfield, a wheat field, potato field, whatever kind of field, uh, cattle, <clears throat> fish, whatever it might be. Labor is just people working. So um, <clears throat> whatever whatever kind of work it is, it's people working. That's all that is. Capital is any kind of tools used to make other products, okay? So think of hammers, nails, bulldozers, uh, screwdrivers, you know, any kind of tool you can think of. Don't get it confused. It is not money, all right? So in this case, it is not money. Uh, and then entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs are anybody that takes a risk with their money. Uh, and they're important. Why are they considered a factor of, uh, why are they considered a factor of production? Well, you need to think about this. The businesses out there, there are the big ones. You know, think Amazon, Walmart, things like that. They're huge. But not everybody can work for Amazon. Not everybody can work for Walmart. There has to be other places for people to work. The largest chunk of businesses are run by these small-time businesses, these single-owned businesses, and those are entrepreneurs. They are taking a risk. They're trying to open a business and they are hiring people, okay, to work for them. So it's a big deal. 
when entrepreneurs, when these individuals are successful, think about all the benefits that it creates for an economy. Okay, uh, they're providing a good service that me and you can go buy. They're providing competition. So maybe we can go to them for a lower price or a better deal or something like that. They're providing jobs for people to go out there and make money and then go out there and spend money. They're providing tax revenue for the government. So entrepreneurs and their success and not the big people, not Bill Gates, not um, who's another one. Um, jobs when he was alive, you know, not these individuals. We're talking about the small time businesses and things like that. All right, 1.2 <clears throat> was the PPC, so the production possibilities curve. And a couple things about it. The PPC measures two items, two products, whatever it might be. And we're kind of looking at the opportunity cost associated with these oftentimes. All right, but the production possibilities curve is going to be this outward concave type uh, curve uh, because of the way it's set up. Now, it's measuring our use of resources, basically. And let's just use the easiest one, and let's go with man hours. So let's say we have 10,000 man hours. And with those 10,000 man hours, we can distribute them how we want to. We can go 5,000 for good A, 5,000 for good B. We can do 6,000 and 4,000, whatever number you want to think of. All right. However, but that's all we got is 10,000. We can put all 10,000 to good A and make all good A's and we make no good B. There's nothing being made for good B. Or we can make all good B's with the 10,000 man hours and no good A's. All right. So if we did that, then our curve would be all the way on good A or all the way on good B. But we don't want to do that. Okay. So if we're making and dedicating all 10,000 hours to good A. But then we decide, you know what? We need to, to move some of these resources off. We need to make some of good B. So let's let's make, let's dedicate 2,000 man hours to good B. Okay. We can't any longer make all of the, the good A's that we were making. There's just no way because we've just diverted resources from there to good B. So our curve has to have some movement on it. And so we have to go from making all good A's to now we're making a smaller number of good A's so that we can make some good B's. Alrighty. So with the 10,000 hours, we were making, let's say, a thousand good A's and zero good B's. But now we're going to divert those 2,000 man hours and we're going to make some good B's. So we're going to make uh, 800 good A's and 200 good B's. So what was the opportunity cost of starting to produce 200 good Bs? Well, we had to give up 200 of the good A's because we diverted our resources already. And so that's the opportunity cost we're talking about on the curve. So when you see something about that, just remember, what did I give up? So if I'm going from good A to good B, good B to good A, whatever it might be, uh, I got to figure out what did I give up to make that amount of that. Now, there are a couple of different points in there. First off, if we're inside the curve. So if you see a point inside the curve, that is bad. That means that of those 10,000 man hours, maybe 2,000 of them, 3,000 of them are not being used. They're out of work. And so that's bad. That's an inefficient use of our resources. Anywhere on the curve 
anywhere on the curve is an efficient use. That means that our people are working, our factories are going, whatever it might be. If we sink inside the curve and you see a point there, that means that it's an inefficient use of our resources. On the outside of the curve, that is a unattainable place. We can't get there. Right? We already said we're at 10,000 man hours. There's no way to squeeze 12,000 man hours out of the 10,000 man hours that we have. There's just no way. So we can't get there. We can't obtain that. Um, it's impossible. Now, we can have shifts on the production possibilities curve. <clears throat> we can shift outward toward that unattainable if, if we get new technology, if we get more man hours, so we're at 10,000, but now some more people move in, we now have 12,000 man hours, okay? So we could be there, uh, but that's a shift outward. We can also shift inward, where that's a, a bad thing, where people are, are leaving our economy, uh, technology is breaking down, uh, or whatever it might be that's causing us to lose our manufacturing abilities. So that's the PPC. And I know it's difficult to kind of visualize without a, on a podcast here, but uh, you take a look at uh, some of your work. Take a look at those study guides. They have it on there. And if you have questions about it, let me know. All right, 1.3 deals with absolute and comparative advantage. So first off, absolute advantage is a situation or – so let me take a step back. We look at either countries typically or we'll look at individuals businesses, types, things like that, and their productions and whatnot. Uh, absolute advantage is where a country or person, business, whatever it might be, uh, produces a good or service better than another country. Okay. Um, and typically we you done using fewer, fewer resources. So um, it can produce more output with the same inputs. Um then country A, country A can do that better than country B. If that's the case, then they have absolute advantage. All right. Um, however, we don't want to always do everything as a country or as a person, people, whatever. So we want to specialize. And so comparative advantage is where we figure out which country, which person can produce a good or service at a lower opportunity cost than the other country. And so we're going to figure out who gives up what. And then we're going to specialize and the other country is going to specialize. Or us as individuals, if we're working, who should specialize in that? Who should specialize in this? And let's work together. Okay. So absolute advantage is where I can do everything better than you. Comparative advantage is where we've decided, okay, this is what I give up the least opportunity cost wise, and I will work on this and specialize in this and do my thing. You specialize in the other thing and we'll get this done. It's all about specialization. It's all about the benefits of trade. All right, 1.5 uh, supply shifts. So there are a couple of things that will shift supply. Now, don't get it confused because we do have movement, but I don't think it's on this test. So I hesitate to even mention it. But uh, if the price changes, it will be movement on the curve versus a shift. However, we are talking about shifts. So there are several things that will make a supply curve uh, go to the right or to the left. A right shift is an increase. A left shift is a decrease. So first up is inputs. Okay. Uh, inputs are anything 
that goes into the production of whatever good we're talking about. If the price goes up for inputs, then we're going to produce less. If the price goes down, then we're going to produce more. All righty. Uh, and that would be the shift. The price stays the same. Okay. We're not going to adjust the price uh, at, at the moment. So we're going to just continue on what we were doing. And uh, it will just cause that shift. Now, once again, inputs can be anything. It can be labor, raw materials, gas, oil, uh, anything like that. Okay. Um, government regulations and taxes, that could be something that would shift uh, if the government is giving us more taxes, less taxes, uh, more regulations, less regulations. All those things will affect our supply. Uh, basically, if they make it more difficult or less difficult. Expectations is another big one. Expectations uh, for us as a producer. Let's say we're doing some future casting and we decide that our product is going to be a hot seller this summer. Okay, so come May, June, when everybody is going to the beach and all that kind of stuff, our product, wherever it might be, is going to sell. The price stays the same right now, but we're going to cut supply. We don't want to have all of our supply out there because we want to hold on to it until june when we can sell it and we can probably sell it at a higher price now if we learn that no one is going to be buying jackets because we're a jacket producer let's say that and we know that when the summer comes around no one is going to be buying our jackets let's put out there as much as we can let's flood the market let's get rid of as much as we can so supply goes up think about it right now we're coming out of the winter months what's fixing to go on sale at closed places all those winter clothes they're going to try and get rid of them because who's going to buy all that stuff during the summertime? Uh, 1.6 changes in inputs effects on equilibrium. Uh, so I've already talked about some of this stuff, uh, the supply shifts, you know, what can, what can do that? Um, a few other things that pop up sometimes number of producers uh, that will, you know, if there's more suppliers, then that means there's more supply. If there's less suppliers, that means there's less supply. Uh, and that's a shift. And once again, just as a reminder, a shift to the right indicates an increase. A shift to the left increases a decrease, uh, indicates a decrease. All right, moving on to unit two. So first off, this is circular flow. And I know, and I knew this before I decided to do a podcast. The circular flow is a diff difficult thing to do without a visual. So uh, take a look. The problem I have with the circular flow is that there's not a uniform model. There are all kinds of circular flows out there. Um, the one we used in class was the firm and the household on the right or left, and then the factor market and the um, product market on the top and bottom. All right. So what you need to remember about the circular flow is that the household, as far as what we provide, we provide resources, the factors of production to the firms. The firms in turn pay us for those factors of production. So that's the flow from the household to the firm and from the firm to the household. Household provides the factors of production, labor, rent, land, property, things like that. And the firm pays the household. So that's the flow there. And that's in the factor or resource market. In the product market, it's the opposite. The firm is providing a product to the household. 
So we're buying a product and we're sending money to the household, uh, to the firm, excuse me. Okay. So the money is typically going to be on the outside of the circle, the circular flow. So if you can just envision the household paying the firm, the firm paying the household. And on the inside, it goes the opposite way. Remember, the firm provides products to the household. The household provides resources to the firm. Now, I don't think the government's involved in this one. You might see some models where the government is involved, but it's just resources, taxes is what is being provided. All right, unemployment and the unemployment formula. So uh, unemployment, just remember, is going to be uh, the number of people that are out of work. The key thing here, though, is you got to be looking for work. You can't just be, hey, I'm just going to stay at home and not go out and look for work. Uh, you have to be out there looking for work to be considered uh, unemployed. You'll need to know the formula. This is why I say to take a calculator. Um, it's not a difficult formula. Okay, the unemployment rate equals uh, the number of unemployed individuals over the labor force time is 100 percent. All right. And that'll give you uh, the percentage. It's not difficult math. You can probably do it. Some of you can probably do it in your head because you're math people uh, and you anger me because you can do math and I struggle with it. But uh, just have a calculator just in case. You never know. It might be easier for you. All righty. Uh, inflation. Remember, inflation is a general rise in the prices. Uh, we go through it and we go through it uh, in, in spurts. Uh, a two percent rise in inflation is typically going to be kind of what we expect. Now, we kind of went through the uh, high rise in inflation over the past couple of years. And, you know, we have felt it. You probably have felt it um, in the grocery store, going out to buy other things. Uh, but anyways, so we're concerned about, you know, expected versus unexpected. So I just said 2% is the expected rate of inflation. So we can plan for that. That's what most people, banks, uh, people who loan money will plan for, uh, people who pay, you know, uh, pay, pay for things, buy things on credit, will plan for about 2% uh, inflation. So we can plan for that. We can factor that stuff into our interest rates, uh, into our savings and all that kind of stuff. The problem we run into is when we get into a situation where there is unexpected inflation. So we don't know what's happening. We don't know what's going on, uh, and it just kind of hits us out of nowhere. And this is really a big problem for people that are on a uh, fixed income, all righty? Uh, or it's a problem for the lenders, so the people that have loaned money that have not attempted uh, to get anything and have fixed a interest rate, okay? So let's take a look at just lenders first off. So if I have bought, lent you money and I said, hey, you can pay me back at 2% interest, but then inflation happens. You're still paying me back in money. Okay. You're still paying me back, but you're paying me back in money that's not worth as much as it was. So now I have to charge people, you know, three, four, five, six percent to make up the difference. So, you know, I'm getting paid back in money that's not worth as much. Uh, you, as a borrow, borrower, are in theory, are happy because you're paying back money that's not worth as much. I've never really liked that argument, though, because I'm still paying you back. I'm still giving you my money to pay back. Um, and, you know, it's still, I'm not really getting much in return other than I got to borrow that money. Uh, now, like rent or something like that, if you can get it locked into a, a rent that is cheaper than what happens with inflation, now that's a good thing. 
Now I feel good about that. Um, but you know, that doesn't happen all the time. Um, <laughs> then fixed income people. So if you're on a fixed income, you're used to spending 5000 and that's what you get. And then all of a sudden, unexpected inflation happens and everything costs more. Uh, you're all of a sudden in trouble because, hey, I'm used to spending 5000 but now I'm having to spend 7000 Where am I going to get that extra 2000 from? All righty. Uh, next up is the GDP deflator. Uh, and first off, just the, uh, the formula, GDP, GDP, the GDP deflator equals, all right, nominal GDP over real GDP times 100. Uh, and that'll give you, um, the, the GDP deflator. And it's basically just a, a measure of inflation or deflation, uh, in the economy. Okay. So, um, it, we usually use it to like convert nominal GDP into real terms and then economists can do what they do. You know, it's not something that me or you is probably going to use too much. Um, but we economists will look at economic growth uh, while taking into account uh, the levels of inflation over time and, and things like that. Uh, we can also use it to sometimes deal with the, the, the purchasing power uh, of money uh, in the economy. So, uh, but know the formula. Uh, nominal GDP over real GDP times 100. Uh, finally, for units one and two is the business cycle. And this is uh, just the up and down effect, basically, uh, that our economy goes through. We go through ups and downs. All right. I, I say this all the time just because I'm a U.S. history person. That's what I, I like. Um, we could go back and look at the history of this country and just follow the economic cycles. And it's just the business cycle, the ups and downs. So when we go up, all right, in the business cycle, that's called expansion. That means that things are going good. We're starting to get jobs. All right. People are out there working. People are out there spending money. The economy is going good. Everybody's happy. At some point, we're going to reach the top where we are at the best it's been. Now, we don't know we're going there and we don't know we're there when we're there because once we get there, we start to go down. All right, so you got the expansion, you peak, and then we go into a recession. And recession is where the economy starts to, to struggle. People are losing their jobs. People aren't spending as much money. We run into problems, and we eventually will bottom out. That's called the trough. And then we'll come out of that, and we'll start going back up, all righty, into another expansion, so on and so forth. Um, but that's just how we are. And sometimes we have bigger expansionary periods. Sometimes we have worse recessionary periods. It just depends on what's going on and what the what the, the factors are and what the government's doing to kind of fight that. All right, so that's one and two. We'll take a break and come back and we'll do unit three. Hello and welcome back. Let's jump into unit three. So unit three is a recent thing. We started off the semester, the second semester with this. Uh, and I'm going to be honest with you, it's probably the most difficult unit we do, just because there's a lot of stuff that you're just not used to doing. All right, taking a look at, um, you know, uh, expanding the money supply or you know, the money becoming, your dollar becoming more and how much you spend and save and um, just some different things that we're just not used to doing. So, um, you know, if you struggled, uh, it's not uncommon for macro students to, to struggle with unit three. Um, so if you're stressing, don't stress too much. All right, so first off, uh, we deal with aggregate demand, the shifts, the increases, and all that kind of stuff. So first off, aggregate just means it's, it's everybody, everything. And that's the thing about macro, is that we are dealing with everything and everybody instead of just our individual stuff like we did in the first semester. So aggregate demand represents 
all of GDP. So all the stuff that goes into it. And remember, GDP consists of consumption. So that's our spending. So me and you going out and buying whatever it is, our goods and services. Investment. So that's the businesses going out and uh, investing in their infrastructure, in their employees, hire more employees, whatever it might be. Government spending. All right. So that's them going out and spending <clears throat> on whatever it is they spend on, whether it be military stuff, whether it be uh, civilian services, whatever it might be. And then net exports, imports versus exports. Alrighty. Uh, we have to take a look at all those things and how it is going to affect uh, demand within the country as a whole. Okay. Uh, and so that's what we're, we're getting at. Now, the aggregate demand curve can shift just like the demand curve can. And it can shift for several reasons. First off, change in consumer spending. If we're buying more, if we're buying less, that's going to affect the aggregate demand curve. And remember, the aggregate demand curve will shift either to the right or the left. To the right is a decrease, excuse me, to the right is an increase, pardon me, and to the left is a decrease. Changes in investment spending. If the businesses are spending more, if they're investing more, this is often tied to the interest rates. Okay, um, So if we look at interest rates and we see that they're down, that's encouraging businesses to go out there and invest and spend and all that kind of good stuff. And if they are investing and spending, uh, that's going to increase aggro-demand, a shift to the right. If interest rates are up, and that's a discouragement to people, businesses, to invest because they have, most businesses don't have thousands and millions of dollars just sitting around in excess capital to sit around and invest with. They have to go get loans from the bank. So high interest rates are going to discourage them from getting those things. Okay. Um, and <clears throat> a high interest rate is going to signify, hey, they're not out there spending. So that would be a decrease in demand. Changes in government spending is pretty simple. If they're spending, that's an increase. If they're not spending, that's a decrease. They like to spend though. Uh, and then net exports. Alrighty. And this is one that's kind of hard to wrap your head around um, because we have to deal with both imports and exports. If we have an excess in exports, all right, so uh, those are the things we're sending out. That's money coming into our country though. So that's going to increase the money, that's going to increase spending, that's going to increase demand here. So aggro-demand goes up. If we have an increase in imports, meaning we're bringing stuff in, that's us buying. That's taking money out. And so we are going to be decreasing. All right. Uh, demand. All right. So think about it. Maybe jot that down. Exports means that money is coming into the country. And when money comes in, that is us spend. We're going to spend our money. Okay. And so that's going to increase demand. Imports is our products, excuse me, uh, products coming in and we're paying for those. And so that's money going out of the economy. Alrighty. So when you take a look at imports and exports, you got to think about what's happening and what's happening to the money in the economy, because that's what it all boils down to uh, with demand, it, uh, aggregate demand. All right. Number two, the MPC. So what is it? And then calculate it. So remember, First off, um, we can only do one of two things. We can spend it, we can save it, all right? Uh, and MPC is just the number that you're going to spend of every extra dollar that you take or get, whatever you want to call it, okay? Um, and it is change in consumption over change in income. 
and that gives you a number. And if you get this, then you get the spending too, the multiple uh, marginal propensity to save. Now, here's what you need to remember, okay? If you see a high marginal propensity to consume number, that means that you are out there spending money, okay? Let's say it's $80. Out of every, excuse me, out of every $100 you get, and your marginal propensity to consume is eight. That means that of that $100, $80 you're going to go out there and spend. That's going to increase our aggregate demand. That's why we use this. That's why we look at this stuff is partly to decide what's happening to demand. What's going to, what's going to stimulate the economy. Okay. Um, but once again, you get it, change in income over change in consumption, and that'll give you your MPC. Um, MPS, same deal, change in income over change in saving. And if you see a high marginal propensity to save, then that means we're not spending and we're out there not demanding. Okay, so that's going to decrease demand. All right. So that's part of the reason that we use MPC and MPS in this unit because it does correlate to our demand. Once again, a high MPC, a high marginal propensity to consume, means that we're out there demanding, we're spending, our money is going out into the economy. A high marginal propensity to save, propensity to save is the opposite, and that means we're saving our money, and so demand is going to go down in that. Okay, uh, be able to to, to do the formula, uh, and let me know if you have questions. Uh, about MPC or MPS. Now, not on the test is the tax multiplier, not the tax, but the just the, the spending multiplier. Um, and that is something that uh, we we use in unit three, uh, but it just happens to not be on this test. Uh, so, but just for you know, the multiplier, what we're looking at there is basically uh, how can our spending, how is that going to stimulate the economy? Okay. Um, and, you know, if I spend $100, what happens to $100? Uh, basically, it's an increase in income for those that are receiving the spending. And then they go out there and they spend it. And it goes on and on and on. So the multiplier is just that, um, you know, the, the spending multiplier. All right. Uh, okay. Number three, or 3.3, uh, 3, aggregate supply, the short run. So aggregate supply is just like aggregate demand in that it's aggregate, meaning we are looking at the totality of the, the country instead of just one supplier, me or you or whoever it might be. Alrighty. So it just it represents the, the total quantity of goods and services uh, that firms are going to produce and supply at all the different price levels. Alrighty. So it's just like the demand thing uh, or just like the supply thing from unit uh one, when we were messing around with all those graphs and things like that. Same deal. So don't stress out when you see aggregate. Just know it's it's the, the, the whole versus just an individual. Okay. Now, we typically tie this to the short run. Okay. The short run aggregate supply. Uh, so be sure if you have to graph, you're not having to graph for this, but in our FRQs, be sure you're labeling stuff SRAS versus just supply. You know, you can get away with that in micro. You can get away with that in uh, unit 
the, the first semester, but you can't do that here. All right. So the short run aggregate supply curve is the relationship between the price level and the quantity of real GDP supplied by firms. All righty. Uh, at all the different um, prices. All right. Um, it's upward sloping. And that's going to be a positive relationship between price and quantity of real GDP supplied. Uh, and <clears throat> the factors uh, that can shift it are kind of the same as regular supply in that inputs, so like wages, raw materials, things like that, uh, expectations, uh, government intervention, regulations, taxes, things like that, okay, um, can all shift the, the short-run aggregate supply curve. So I'm not going to redo everything, but just remember, like, inputs. So if wages goes up, that's costing the supplier more to make whatever it is they're making. So they're going to make less of it. That's going to be a decrease in supply. If wages go down, which they don't oftentimes go down because people would quit. But if wages were to happen to take a cut, okay, uh, that means the supplier can supply more. And so they're going to be able to increase. So when we think about the short run and the things that are happening, we got to remember, <clears throat> excuse me, that um, anything that allows the producers, the suppliers to make more of their product is going to increase and be a shift to the right. Anything that decreases what the suppliers or how much the suppliers can make is going to be a shift to the left. All righty. Um, I think that's it for that part. All right. 3.4 long run aggregate supply and the PPC. So remember the long run agri supply curve, uh, that's that straight up and down curve. All righty. Uh, so when you're taking a look at it, it's probably going to be uh, a straight vertical long run agri supply curve because it is in the long run and everything here is variable. So they're not as affected by some of the input issues that happen in the short run. Okay. Uh, so that's why it is that way. Um, the price level is not going to affect or have the same effect uh, here. So that's the big difference between the short run. The short run, all those inputs, all those things are going to affect the, the supply. In the long run, they can, they can kind of weather the storm maybe. They can uh, get around. They can respond differently uh, in the long run. And so that's why it's going to be that vertical line. And once again, be sure you label it correctly. Like I said earlier about the short run, be sure you're doing this one as long. All righty. Now, we've already talked about the PPC, so I'm not going to spend time there, but just the relationship between these two things. Uh, they both are going to represent the economy's potential. All right. And the potential output that they both have. Think about it. The PPC. Hey, this is all of our resources, all the man hours. And this is what we can make with those man hours. Long run average supply curve kind of shows the same thing. This is our full potential, all right, where nothing is affecting us other than just, hey, here we go. Um, the, we, can, we can survive the high wages. We can survive the, the dip in the business side, whatever it might be, okay? Um, so that's kind of where we get, get to with the relationship between the PPC and the long run aggregate, uh, yeah, the long run aggregate supply curve. All right, the long run, the prices and wages. Um, in the long run, prices and wages are going to be determined 
by the interaction of agri-demand and long-run agri-supply in the economy, okay? Uh, how is that the case? Well, the wages are determined by the, what's, how am I going to say this? Um, it's determined by basically how much we go out there to spend. Okay, so as agri-demand increases, you're probably going to see a upswing in wages for people, or at least more people being hired, so more money going into that, that, uh, into that, all righty, uh, because as we spend more, more gets produced, and as more gets produced, more money is made by <clears throat> the company, therefore more money made by the, the, the employees, and they go out there spending, and that's going to increase other things. Uh, around around the, the country. Um, so that's kind of how that happens. Alrighty. Uh, prices are determined kind of the same way by the interaction between uh, agri-demand and long-run agri-supply um, as the shifts reflect the potential output due to, to all the factors that are happening, you know, that we've talked about with supply technologically, uh, you know, expectations, uh, labor force, those sorts of things. Okay. All right. 3.5, the aggregate demand, aggregate supply, and long run aggregate supply models producing at full employment. So we've already talked about aggregate demand and we've talked about short run aggregate supply. Uh, this is that situation where and, and ma mainly what this is getting at is that curve or that graph where you have the long run agri supply curve and then you have the short run agri supply curve and the agri demand curve intersecting somewhere on that long run agri supply curve. Okay. Um, and that is where we are in equilibrium with in the short run, the long run and the agri demand curve. Okay. And so when we're producing at full employment, uh, that means that everything uh, is going good. Real GDP produced is equal to the economy's potential output um, as you know, determined by the long-run agri-supply curve. <clears throat> and you know, at that point, we're, we're kind of, everything's good. Like uh, people that want to work are working. Uh, prices are, are decent for us. Um, it's good use of our resources, uh, just it's, it is equilibrium. Okay. It is equilibrium. Uh, and so that's that relationship. That's what the relationship we're talking about uh, is between, between those things. Now we do get into recessionary and expansionary models here as well. Um, and that is where we're going to have the shifts and where equilibrium is going to shift. Um, if we shift to the left, so if you see a point where equilibrium has been moved off of the long run aggregate supply curve, that's that recessionary phase. All righty. Uh, and that's where we're operating outside of equilibrium. We're operating where things, and when I say things, inputs, people are out of work, um, economic activity has decreased. Uh, it's a problem. Okay. Now on the flip side, if you see a equilibrium point on off the long run aggregate supply curve off to the right, that is expansionary. And that is where, uh, you know, things are operating, uh, pretty well. Uh, it's closer to potential output. You know, people are, are working for the most part. 
uh, where lower unemployment uh, economic activity is up. However, it will lead to higher prices because of that economic activity. So that's the difference. If you see equilibrium point on the left of the curve looking at it, that is going to be recessionary. If you see to the right when you're looking at it, that's going to be expansionary. Uh, let's see, point six, the ADAS, so aggregate-demand, aggregate-supply graph, effects of increase in aggregate supply. So uh, when we look at this, okay, uh, we're trying to understand how shifts in the production capacity influence uh, things like output, uh, things like prices, uh, employment, alrighty. So uh, I think y'all are good with the equilibrium. Uh, so that point where AD and short-run agri-supply or agri-supply meet, that is going to be the equilibrium point where everything is good. Uh, GDP equals the economy's potential output level. You know, we're pretty happy there. Uh, if we increase agri-supply, so something has happened. Um, some kind of technological advancement, more people, more workforce, uh, whatever it might be. Okay, that's going to cause the short run aggregate supply curve to shift to the right. And now firms are, are producing at a greater quantity of goods because that's what happens when we have these kind of technological advances, more people and whatnot. All righty. Uh, and that just reflects the, the increased production capacity and output. And so then we have a new equilibrium point. Right. So that shift has led us to a new equilibrium point. Uh, and the new equilibrium point is going to be. Um, once again, just that quantity of real GDP uh, demanded, but it might exceed the economy's potential output level. And as a result, we have kind of a surplus happening uh, because now there's more product than there is demand, uh, which then might put some pressure on prices and we might tend to see some lower prices happening uh, here, which makes it to where we want to consume because prices go down. So we have to adjust. All right. And so the economy will you know, with the agri-demand curve, we, we will adjust it uh, ourselves. We may not realize we're adjusting it, but uh, we are going to eventually adjust to the new equilibrium level. Okay. All right. The effect of reduction in aggregate supply and increase in aggregate demand. Uh, so in this situation, uh, it's the opposite. Okay. So now we have reduced aggregate supply and we are seeing those issues whatever the issues might be people out of work technology breaking down uh, natural disasters whatever it might be and we've had a shift okay and so everything we just said is going to be the opposite there's going to be less products out there all right so and there's going to be high demand for those goods because there's less of them. So we're going to be out there looking, searching for these goods. So demand is going to be going up. Uh, and that's going to incentivize these plants, these producers, uh, to make more of their product, to hire more workers and try and kind of pull us out of that situation where <clears throat> we are facing uh, less products. Okay. Uh so increase in real short-run output. Um, this is going to be, there's going to be some policies here, and it's going to be the expansionary fiscal policy is the big one. Remember, fiscal policy is what our government does. And when I say government, I mean Congress and the president. They can spend, they can tax. Really, they can spend. 
But if they are expanding, that means they're trying to fight unemployment. They're trying to put money out into the economy. So in theory, they're going to lower taxes, which doesn't happen. And they're going to spend more money. The monetary policy, remember, that's what the Federal Reserve does. <laughs> the Federal Reserve Bank deals in monetary policy. Uh, and they try to mess with the, 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 the money supply. If they are contracting, they're pulling money out. If they are expanding, they're putting money out there. All right. So that's how they will affect the real, the, that, uh, the short run output. Uh, the ADAS graph long run adjustment. So you've got some things going on here uh, that are going to adjust the aggregate demand and aggregate supply model. Um, and it, it's trying to, so we're talking about adjustment here. We're trying to get back to the, the full potential output level and full employment over time. And we just kind of talked about all the stuff that, that, that goes on <clears throat> when we move off of the graph uh, or excuse me, off of our equilibrium point And we, we set a new equilibrium point. So if supply increases, if supply decreases, uh, what's going to happen. So we then have to kind of adjust and it's going to be us as consumers that will typically adjust to those things. Uh, we will buy more, we will buy less of a product, and eventually we will work work our way out. Uh, this is something that we don't really get into in this class, but um, Adam Smith had theorized back in the day, a long time ago, uh, about an invisible hand that just moves the market, moves it up and down, uh, and you know, we get out of whack and prices have gone way up, so we buy less, so the prices come down. The market just kind of takes care of itself. And so, you know, there are things that we'll do. You know, we react to the prices, we react to the less goods, we react to the more goods, so on and so forth. Um, and that will affect uh, the aggregate demand and eventually get us back to an equilibrium point uh, on the curve where we want to be. Um, Effective aggregate demand shift in the long run. So that's going to put us into that either expansionary or that recessionary gap. Okay. So if the aggregate demand curve in the long run shifts, uh, it's going to move us either we're going to have an increase and we're going to see that expansionary gap or we decrease demand and we get into the contractionary or the recessionary gap. Contractionary fiscal policy. This is where the government is trying to. Uh, take money out of the economy. So they're going to decrease spending. They're going to increase their taxes. Expansionary fiscal policy, they're trying to put money into the economy. So they're going to reduce taxes. They're going to increase their spending. Discretionary fiscal policy. Uh, discretionary is where they have to think about it. <coughs> We're fixing to talk about automatic stabilizers. Discretionary, though, is where they make some conscious decisions. So that's where they, okay, hey, let's spend here. Let's build more roads. Let's buy more military gear. Let's reduce that stuff. So they can think about and they can take some, some actions to reduce and increase spending. Um, just set some of the examples. All right, finally for uh, Unit 3, the automatic stabilizers. These are the things that were built in to try and... So this isn't discretionary. This is stuff that just happens. Uh, they, the, the government, Congress has already written these into law, and we uh, just don't really recognize that they're there, but they're built in to try and you know keep the economy under control. They can be to protect from a recession. So if everybody's losing their job, and I know not everybody will lose their job, but if people are losing their job, there is a stabilizer, the unemployment. 
you can go collect unemployment. It's not going to, you know, make you rich, but it'll keep you afloat and it'll keep the economy going. It stabilizes the economy because if too many people are losing their job and you're not spending, then that means that other people are going to lose their job and that can spiral out of control. Now, we can go the other way, too, to fight inflation. Uh, and the income tax is one of these, the progressive income tax. So as people get more money from raises and things like that, we would be out there spending more money. And if we spend too much money, we cause inflation. Uh, the income tax takes money out automatically. That's why it's an automatic stabilizer and tries to keep that spending under control. All right, let's take our last break. Come back and we'll talk about Unifor. Hello there. Welcome back to the last segment. Now, the first two segments have gone really, really long. Okay, so I'm going to try and go. I don't want to go too fast because I want to make sure we get the information, but I also don't want to, to make this thing like an hour long, um, which is what it feels like it's going towards. Uh, so anyways, Unit 4 is the most recent stuff, so hopefully it's the stuff you're most familiar with. So I'll try and move quick, but I want to make sure you get it. Uh, all right, so first off, Unit 4, the financial assets. Uh, so first off, Financial assets are all the things that make you and build up your wealth. They might not be money on hand. So you know, billionaires don't have billions of dollars in their wallet or their bank accounts or things like that. They probably have some of these financial assets, whether it's money in the stock market, money in a company, money in whatever it might be. Uh, and you know, if they need to, they can sell that stuff off. Okay, Real estate could be an example of this. Uh, maybe your parents have two houses or something like that. Uh, uh, main home and a vacation home. If they really needed to, they could sell off the vacation home and get some money on hand. Uh, so that's what we're talking about. Now, uh, for this, we're talking about bonds versus stocks. Now, a bond is going to be <clears throat> a pretty safe vehicle. And it is, it, that bonds are offered by the government usually, but it could also be offered by businesses, companies, things like that. But let's focus in on the uh, the government. Basically, a bond is a loan that you're giving to whatever you're buying it from. So back in World War II, the American government was selling war bonds. All right. Uh, and those were just loans to the government, basically. So people would go, here's $100. Go do what you do need to with it, U.S. government. Uh, and remember, interest rates are the cost of borrowing money. So because the person is going to get paid back, the federal government would offer, hey, here's 5% interest. So that's the cost of us taking this loan. We're going to pay you back the $100 plus the 5% interest. Okay. Um, so bonds are pretty safe. They're going, they're, you're not going to make a lot of money. They're not going to be high interest rates and things like that. Stocks, uh, that is a little bit different. Okay. It's a much different investment vehicle. It's a lot more risky. Uh, you could lose your money uh, very quickly in the stock market. So be careful. But stocks are just ownership in a company. They're not the loan that you're going to get with a bond or you're going to give with a bond. Stocks are uh, you buying a part of the company and then you rise and fall with the success or failure of that company. Uh, if it's successful, then you're going to see your stock prices go up. If it's unsuccessful, you'll see your stock prices go down. Uh, this is why there's so many people out there that get into finances that are, hey, I'm going to go manage you know, stocks for people. And if you're good at it, then you can make a lot of money because you're, if you're successful, then you're going to get some money off of that. Anyways, um, that is the difference between bonds and stocks. Bonds, you have owner, you, you're giving a loan to whatever entity you're loaning to uh, versus the stock and its, its ownership in the company. Our interest rates increase in an economy. <clears throat> so we already talked about this uh, in an earlier unit about the inflation uh, and interest rates affecting you know all kinds of different things. Uh, as interest rates in the economy, 
you're going to see less people wanting to, to borrow money. All right. And so that means that there's going to be less things bought, like less homes, uh, less cars and things like that. Because once again, interest rates, high interest rates are high cost of doing business. All righty. So right now, the housing market is kind of stagnated and people aren't moving out. People aren't buying homes because people that have their homes are locked into good interest rates. People that want to buy homes are seeing that interest rates are way up. So we're at a kind of a standstill as far as homes go. So as interest rates increase and people are looking to borrow money, they're going to borrow less. As interest rates go down, like we saw in 2021 with the housing boom, interest rates were crazily low. And so people were willing to go out there and buy uh, homes all over the place. All righty. Um, all right. Number 2.2, uh, inflation exceeded expected rate. So we've already talked about the, uh, you know, the inflation uh, and unexpected inflation and, and all that kind of stuff. So I'm not going to spend much time here. Uh, just remember what I said earlier. Uh, when it happens, okay, it's going to hurt fixed income people. It's going to hurt creditors. So people who have made loans and are now getting paid back in money that's worth less. It's going to benefit borrowers and people that have borrowed money <clears throat> and that owe money because they get to pay money back in money that's worth less. Fixed interest rate loans, uh, just talked about that. That is where you are locked in. So, you know, when you buy a home, when you buy a car, don't take an APR. That's an adjustable rate. Okay. Or a, uh, I can't remember what it's called. It's, it, don't take the adjustable one because that means the bank can change it uh, as they need to. Get one that's locked in, especially if you get a good one. Okay. Uh, if you're buying a home and you can get a fixed interest rate at like 2%, take that and don't look back. Okay. Uh, because that's that's a good thing. Um <clears throat> It is going to make it to where your payment is where it's going to be. You're not going to see any changes, no ups and downs versus an adjustable rate where the bank can make it to where they are benefiting from it. All right, 4.3 deals with the functions of money. There are three functions of money. The medium of exchange is pretty easy to understand. Uh, that is going to be where the money is going to what drives the buying and selling of goods. You can go in and instead of having to trade for something, you just give them the money and they take it and you get your, your product. It serves as a unit of account. That means that you can go into a store and you can see the price and you can know pretty quickly, hey, I can afford this, I can't afford that. It's that unit of account that gives us an idea of how much something is worth. And then store value, money is going to hold its value over time, okay? Um, uh, when we did the, the sync session on this, I told the story of finding a, a birthday card with $20 in it from when I was turned 16, many years ago, 30 years ago. Uh, and it still, is $20. Now, it doesn't buy as much because of inflation, but it's still $20. All right, the transaction demand for money. Uh, this represents the desire to hold on to money in liquid form. So, hey, I remember liquidity is you have cash on hand, okay? Um, and so <laughs> we uh, are going to be kind of encouraged, uh, maybe not encouraged, we tend to want to hold on to money when we have a lot of spending to do. Okay, so we, we want to have that cash on hand. Uh, and so, you know, when we have incentive to save, so high interest rates in our savings accounts and things like that, uh, we don't have as much money on hand because we put it into those things. All right. And so this is going to affect the money supply. Point four, reserve requirement and increase to the money supply. So the Federal Reserve does something called the reserve requirement. And this is where they require the banks to hold on to 
a certain amount of money when you deposit it. Okay. Um, and it is, we, we, we say that it's used to, to affect the money supply because they could raise it and lower it, but they don't, they haven't raised it or lowered it. They haven't done anything to it since the nineties, just because if they were to mess with the reserve requirement all the time, it would be such a hassle for the banks to constantly have to put money in there, take money out, uh, and all that kind of stuff. But in theory, okay. You're raising the reserve requirement. That means they're going to make the banks keep more. That lowers the, the money supply because that's less money going out in the form of loans. If they lower it, that encourages banks to put more, put more money out there because they don't have to put as much uh, back. They can send it out in loans. Uh, the fractional reserve banking system. Uh, so we have this in the United States, okay? Um, and they are going to... Uh, all that means is just we have multiple banks out there. Okay, we have multiple levels of banks. You have the Federal Reserve, you have the uh, you know, regular old banks, and things like that. And so uh, they are going to basically be the ones that that put money out there in the form of of loans that they send out. Um, it gets created by us because we put our money into these banks. Okay, into the regular old banks maybe not necessarily the Federal Reserve, uh, but we put it out there, okay? And then they're able to multiply it out because they send that money out in the form of loans, right? But that's the fractional rent reserve banking system. <clears throat> Once again, I'm trying to move pretty quickly here. If I go too fast with Uniform and you have a question, please shoot me an email. How do banks work? Make this as simple as possible. Um, they are going to take your money, Okay, and if, if you think that, hey, the bank puts my money into a little box and they hold on to it for me and they save it forever for me, they don't. Okay, your money goes into um, the, the pot, basically, and they send it out into the, the economy in the form of loans. Uh, people buying their homes, people buying their cars, people taking out loans to go to college, whatever it might be. All right, uh, that's what happens to your money. All righty. And so that's part of the reason we're called that fractional bank banking system as well is the fact that they will keep a fraction of your money in the bank. However, the rest they send out in the form of loans. Uh, let's see. Point five, the increase in nominal income and the money supply. Okay. So income is the money we make. And, you know, the money <clears throat> that we make, uh, we can do one of two things with it. We know this from MPC and MPS. We can either spend it or we can save it. All righty. Uh, if there's an increase in nominal income, that leads to higher levels of consumer spending. Therefore, aggregate demand goes up in the economy. Uh, and as we earn more money, you know, we, like I said, we increase our consumption. And that leads to higher levels of transactions uh, and money circulation, that whole money multiplier that we talked about. Okay. Uh, so that's what that's getting at. So as we make more money, that's more money going out there. The multiplier is going into effect. As we spend more money, we are, are getting more money out there. Uh, all right. The demand for money. So we talked about this on Tuesday, the 20th. Um, I think it was when we talked about it. Trying to look. Sorry, one second. Oh, well, I won't look. It doesn't matter. Uh, so the demand for money. So uh, our demand for money goes up and goes down 
uh, when we have spending to do. Okay, if we're having to, to pay lots of bills and you know just all of our economic economic activity, whatever it might be, going out to dinner, uh, just paying our bills, paying our rent, things like that. Uh, that's the transactional demand. Okay, and as we have more, then the transa transactional demand goes up. As we have less things we have to pay, transactional demand goes down. So if we're not having to spend as much, we don't want as much money uh, on hand. So that's all that is. You know, if you're if you see the the demand for money. Just know uh, that it's about that. Now, the demand curve for money, okay? Um, <clears throat> remember that we are incentivized by interest rates to hold on to our money or to put our money into the savings and money-making uh, vehicles that we might have. So as interest rates are up and the PowerPoint on this had 20 all the way down to 2%. So 20% interest rates. If you're getting a 20% interest rate on your savings account or some kind of investment vehicle that you have, throw your money in there. Spend less because you're making a good chunk of change uh, on that money. So our demand curve is going to show that we have a less demand for money with those high interest rates and vice versa. If we have low interest rates, then we are incentivized to keep our money out and you know, maybe not necessarily go out and spend it, but you know, it's probably what we're going to do because we can only do a few things. Um, but that is, is what that is. And then we get into the opportunity cost of holding on to money. It's that same relationship. If we have a high interest rate and we are keeping our money in our pockets, we're doing a, a big opportunity cost there and a huge loss because we could have our money in the bank making money. You know, whatever it is you, you have, CDs, bonds, whatever it might be, if the interest rates are high, you want to put your money into that account and you want to uh, save as much money as possible because you're going to be making money on that. And that's where that opportunity cost is getting at. All right, point six, the money supply and the aggregate demand, aggregate supply graph model. So the money supply in uh, ADAS, okay, is what we're looking at here. Uh, and we've already talked about all these things. So the money supply curve uh, is similar to the aggregate demand curve. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, an increase in the money supply lowers interest rates and, and, and all those kinds of things. Um, so the monetary policy implications here. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, when they're adjusting the interest rates and, and whatnot, uh, that's going to affect our desire. To hold on to money and so it's just translating that movement those shifts onto the graph all right so as we are incentivized to put money out there you know um, by low interest rates so we're not making much money we have a high demand for money and so we're spending more so what's that doing to demand that's increasing demand and then vice versa when we're spending less that's decreasing demand and then the effects we've already talked about uh, on the aggregate supply. Open market operations uh, to fight unemployment. So open market operations uh, is the Federal Reserve buying and selling bonds. Okay, that's them buying and selling bonds. If they're fighting unemployment, then they're buying. If they're buying, that is giving us money for our bonds, and therefore that's putting money into the economy. So remember that if they are looking to fight unemployment, that means they're looking to put money into the economy and therefore they're going to buy bonds from us 
And that puts money out there and we go out there and spend it. If they're looking to take money out, then they're selling. That's taking money from us and giving us a bond. All righty. Uh, the reserve requirement where I talked about, they don't mess with that very much, but that is where they would require the banks to keep more or less in the bank. So a high reserve requirement, 90%. That means that of every $100 you put in, they got to put $90 back and they can only loan out $10 and vice versa. A low reserve requirement, 10%, means that they're putting 10% back and then loaning out 90%. So that's going to affect the economy. High reserve requirement is going to take money out. Low reserve requirement is going to put money in to the economy. The discount rate, this is what the banks can go to the Federal Reserve and borrow money on. So if a bank goes to a competitor bank, they're going to charge them a high interest rate and it's not going to be good. Okay, it's going to, like, I'm not going to say it's going to put them out of business, but it's not going to be uh, a good business deal for a bank to get a loan from a competitor. So the Federal Reserve recognizes this. And so if a bank's in trouble, they can go to the Federal Reserve and they can get a discount rate, interest rate on their loan. If it's low, if the discount rate is low, that means they're encouraging these banks that are in trouble to come and get loans and continue to operate, continue to put money out there. If the discount rate is high, that is discouraging those banks to continue to operate and put money out there. The federal reaction and agri-demand shifts. So um, going back to what we've been saying there already, um, if they are expanding, that means they want to increase demand. That is going to be them buying bonds, giving us money for our bonds. That is going to be them lowering the reserve requirement. That is going to be them lowering the discount rate. Okay, that is them expanding. That is going to lead to agri-demand increasing. Contractionary is the opposite. That's going to be selling the bonds, taking money from us. Reserve requirement going up. Banks have to keep more. They're not going to loan out as much money. Discount rate up. They're going to discourage the banks that are in trouble from operating. Okay. Uh, and that's going to decrease the demand and shift the demand curve to the left. Finally, I think finally, point seven, uh, the change in the demand for loanable funds. So the demand for loanable funds represents the desire of borrowers, so me and you, okay, uh, to get money through loans for investment and or consumption purposes. Um, and it, let's take it piece by piece. So business and consumer, okay. Um, <clears throat> business investment, when businesses are excited, optimistic, think things are going to be going well, uh, they want to take opportunities and they want to increase their operations and things like that. So they may increase their demand for funds, for the loanable funds. They might be looking to, to borrow. Okay. Uh, conversely, if things are looking bleak, things are looking poor, they're going to decrease their demand for loanable funds. Okay. Consumers are the same way. When we're optimistic, when we think things are going well, we want to take advantage of those times and we'll borrow money. So we increase the demand for loanable funds. And then when things are looking poor, bad, whatever, we typically don't. You know, think, if, if, if things are looking bad in a recession, we're not going out there and buying new cars, new homes, and things like that. Government, the same way, they'll borrow too. Um, but to me, it doesn't have the same effect. All right, changes that shift investment demand. Uh, interest rates are the big things, all righty. Uh, interest rates up, 
interest rates up, and this we're talking about investment, okay, uh, then we are going to um, put our money into the investment vehicle. If we're talking about interest rates and borrowing, interest rates up equals bad, and we're not going to borrow as much. All righty. Uh, and then the opposite is true. If we're talking interest rates on invest, investment and they are down, then we don't want to put our money in there. We want to spend it. If it's talking about interest rates and business loans and things like that, then we want to, to get those interest rates. So when we're talking about investment, all right, so that's what we're talking about. I kind of went off track there a little bit talking about the, uh, the business loans and whatnot. So investment High interest rates encourages us to put our money into the economy, excuse me, into the investment vehicles, whatever it might be, stocks, bonds, whatever we have. Okay. Low interest rates are going to get us to, to go out there and keep our money out and spend it. Loanable funds demand. So this is the uh, desire uh, of borrowers, us. Okay. Once again, we've already kind of went over this. Uh, to borrow funds from all the different financial markets. And uh, once again, interest rates play a, a role here. So it's kind of the opposite of what we just said. Uh, high interest rates and the loanable funds means we're not going to go out there and borrow as much because that's low incentive for us to borrow. Low interest rates means that we are going to go borrow. You know, once So the housing market was crazy back in 2021. I can't remember if I told you all this or not, but it was crazy. You could get an interest rate for like 1.5, 2%, 3%, which is really good for a house, especially if you're getting a big loan. People were buying like crazy. All right. Uh, my friend who works at the, my face-to-face -face job with me, they put their house in the market, and that night they had like five offers, sight unseen. No one even cared. They just wanted to buy the house. They ended up selling their house for $120,000 over what they were asking. All right. Today that's not happening because the interest rates are up and people aren't buying homes as much because the people that bought the homes when they got the low interest rates are sitting on them. There's no reason to sell. Even though prices are up, there's no, because when you go out to get a new house, your, your interest rate is going to be too high. You're not going to get the same interest rate that you got in 2016, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. Alrighty. Uh, and so that is that. All right, guys, this went way longer than I meant it to. If you've made it this far, God bless you. Uh, let me know if you have questions, if you have concerns, uh, email me uh, and I will try and respond as fast as I possibly can. But uh, best of luck on this midterm. Best of luck on all your midterms. I hope you make all 100s and I will see you uh, when I see you either Sunday the 25th uh, at the review or uh, the next week when we're doing our next session. All right, guys, take care and bye bye.